Today I wanted to get out into the city streets here in Houston and figure out what Houstonians really think about what the Bible is and what it isn't. If you had to say fact or fiction with the Bible, what would you say? Fact. Fact. Is the Bible fact or fiction? Fact. Fact? 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 No fictions? Hey, quick question. I'm asking Houstonians today. I know you. Do you? From St. Luke's? Yeah. Hey, I'm Eric. When you look at the Bible, is it fact or is it fiction? For me, it's fiction. Um, fiction. 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 Both of you fiction. Uh, I think it's totally fact, man. Totally fact? Yeah. I think it's fiction. Fiction? Yeah. Okay, why? Well, I'm gay and I think that, you know, you look at people who are really Christian or family members who are really Christian and, you know, they're the, the quickest one to judge you, which the Bible says not to judge others. So would you say your problem maybe is more about how people use and interpret the Bible than maybe the book itself? Yeah, I think people use it to how they want to see the world. How do you think Jesus, the central figure in the Bible, how do you think he would feel about how the Bible is used today? I think he'd be embarrassed. When was the last time you actually read the Bible? This morning, actually. This morning. What'd you read? Uh, the 23rd Psalm. Did you know that the Psalms was a hymn book? It was a, a book of songs? Yes. Yeah. What's your favorite song? Let's hear it. <laughs> um, I'm not going to sing for you. Oh, come on. Oh, no. Um, I'll sing with you. Uh, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, yeah, sure. Here we go. Amazing Grace. How sweet. You know the words, right? Nope, that's wrong. Sorry. Oh, it's, but you see, when I how, sing it, how great thou art. How great they are. But yeah. when I sing in church, it doesn't matter. If you it doesn't it right matter. Or or I know. It that's That's because God is a forgiving God. That's right. All right. We got a fact. To make your sign with black, it's hard to read. It's my first time doing this, lady. <laughs> I'm not exactly an old pro. So um, for you, Bible, 100% fact. For me, it's 100% fact. I can't speak for everybody else. My name is Henry and I know one thing. The Bible is fact. Two. Why two? Why two? Made up story, thank you. What do you think? Fact or fiction? Fiction. Why you say why you say fiction? No, I'm just I'm asking for you. Oh, she's paranoid about. She thinks I'm converting people. They think I'm gonna pull out a megaphone and start preaching at them. Subarus always think it's fiction. Guaranteed. If they're in a Subaru, they think it's fiction. I mean, and if they're in a pickup truck, they think it's fact. <laughs> we got a fact. It's better that. Todo verdad. Man, I'll tell you what, it's hard work. I'm tired. All right. I'm Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story, and we are starting a new sermon series today with a little bit of a different kind of message. Um, I want to ask three essential questions today about the Bible, this mysterious, wonderful book we call the Bible, which is the source of so much controversy and misunderstanding and historically so many things like war and all this stuff. Like, what is this book? So the first question I'm going to tackle is whether the Bible is fact or fiction, as I did in that video. The second one is going to be whether the Gospels are reliable. And the third question is whether Jesus is a, is a myth or is the Messiah. So let's begin. Is the Bible fact or fiction? What would you say? Don't say it out loud. They're going to judge you. This, if, 
if somebody will judge you, if I gave everybody here truth serum and you had to tell what was really on your mind about the Bible, and maybe if we weren't in a church building, I would guess we would have a pretty split audience about that question if I made you answer it. I would guess there's probably a little over half of you maybe who would say unequivocally the Bible is fact and any other answer than the Bible is fact is heresy. You don't have time for that. Like the Bible is fact, period. You're a Christian, you're in church on a Sunday morning, I would expect you to say that. But there's also a silent minority in this room. I would guess of about 20% or so who would, if you asked them real quietly, they would admit that the Bible seems a lot like fiction, like the guy in the tunnel that I interviewed or the woman in the car that said, it's made up stories. Some of you think the Bible might be useful fiction. Maybe it's helpful fiction. It's fiction that helps us to build a society that's orderly around it. But nevertheless, it's fiction because it reads a lot like other kinds of fiction do. And that's about 20% of you. And I would guess there's about 30% of you who just don't care enough to vote. Like you're just, <laughs> you're just rising above this thing, man. You don't come to church to get in more arguments. You come to church to feel good. And really, you don't really know. And what you do know is that people who answer fact or fiction unequivocally kind of rub you the wrong way for different reasons, but the fiction people seem a little full of themselves. They seem a, a little pretentious. And the fact people seem a little religious. They seem a little fundamentalist and they're weird too. And you're just right in the middle. I'm not even sure. And that might be a good place to sit because when it comes to this question, is the Bible fact or fiction, people on both extremes have some questions to answer, right? So if you say the Bible is fiction, listen, you're going to have to deal with in an honest way, all the facts the Bible contains. I'm not even talking theology yet. I'm just talking history. When we look at something like the Old Testament, for example, the 39 books of the Old Testament tell a story containing many, many historical facts. And oftentimes those facts are, are, are told in ways that are clear and truly unrivaled in terms of their historical accuracy. Now, I know this isn't the story many of you have heard. You've heard that the Old Testament is a bunch of myths, made up stories, and made up places and people, but I'm telling you, it seems like every other week, archaeologists are uncovering new information that almost universally backs up the stories as presented in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. For, for, for the longest time, um, it was assumed among secular scholars that the people called Israel didn't really constitute themselves until well after 1000 BC. So anything the Bible tells about before 1000 BC regarding the Hebrews or the people called Israel is fiction because there's no evidence that the people of Israel existed as a people until after 1000 BC. Y'all with me? Well, this is another example of where archaeology backs up the biblical record. I'll give you one story here of a, of a thing they uncovered called the Merneptah Steel. The Merneptah Steel um, is an ancient Egyptian artifact that comes from the year 1230 BC. And it, um, it is inscribed with the edict from the Egyptian Pharaoh Merneptah. And on this steel, he refers to the 
Israelite kingdom as a rival kingdom in 1230 BC. And if they're already a rival kingdom by 1230 BC, they no doubt existed as a people far long before that. And so the underpinnings of these secular arguments against the Old Testament begin to crumble. You fast forward just a couple of centuries to the time of King Hezekiah, two different books in the Old Testament, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, both tell the story of the same event when the city of Jerusalem was under attack by the Assyrians and it seemed like there was no hope. Good King Hezekiah came through to save his people from death by dehydration. He provided a source of fresh water for the embattled citizens of Jerusalem by amazingly ordering the construction of a tunnel under the city of Jerusalem. Now, historians said they didn't have the tools to do that. Then there's no, that's the kind of legendary myth that people come up with posthumously to make the king sound better and smarter than he really was. That's a legend. And then recently, archaeologists uncovered the tunnel from King Hezekiah's day, the exact tunnel that was built exactly the way the Bible said that it was. It is wonderful and magnificent. And they uncovered this inscription on the wall inside the tunnel from the days of King Hezekiah, written by the very men King Hezekiah ordered to build that miraculous tunnel. It is exactly as the Bible says. One more example, this is a little uh, more familiar because we just talked about Nehemiah for eight weeks here at the story, seven weeks. And in the days of Nehemiah, um, the Israelite exiles, the Bible says, the Israelite exiles were freed by the, um, by the Persian king, um, the emperor um, called uh, uh, Cyrus. It, is wi- it was widely attested that emperors don't generally let their free labor go. Emperors of growing empires need exiles and prisoners of war to build their future kingdom, right? And so scholars said forever, that's something the Bible writers put in there as a tool to tie in these loose threads in their story. King Cyrus of Persia set the exiles free. And then they found the Cyrus Cylinder, which says verbatim what the Bible says Cyrus said. When he let the Israelite captives go free, back to their homeland with no strings attached. If you're going to say unequivocally the Bible is fiction, you really have to check that. Otherwise, you will sound lazy at best and dishonest at worst. And so if it's fiction, how does it describe so many factual events perfectly and historically accurate? Um, Now... Just because the Bible contains a lot of facts, does that make the Bible fact? It's a good question. I have a friend named Jason. He's in his 20s, and he goes to the story sometimes, not as much as I would like him to. Jason, if you're listening, no judgment, but get back. And um, (laughs) Jason told me once about the time that he read the Bible for the first time by himself, and it was at a wedding, his friend's wedding, and it was a Catholic wedding, and no one ever told Jason about Catholic weddings. He had no idea what he was in for. He had no idea that it was gonna be 90 minutes of pure, unadulterated boredom. And he just sat there. They took his phone so nobody would take pictures of the wedding. And he was just there. What am I supposed to do with myself? And so he's like, I'll just read this book. And he picked up the Bible and he turned to the first page and read for the first time in his life, in his 20s, he read the Bible for himself. 
Genesis 1, he found the story of the creation of the cosmos. And he said what jumped off the page at him wasn't just the words from Genesis 1. It was how they seemed to, in detail, contradict what he had learned in science class about the creation of the universe. And he said he got a little hung up on that, but it didn't surprise him because he'd always heard that faith and science were at odds. But then he kept reading and he got to chapter 2 of Genesis. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, he discovered a whole different story about the same creation event. He was very confused about this because these two stories told the events in different ways. And it seemed to Jason as though different things were done in different order. For example, in Genesis 1, God made the man and woman at the same time. In the image of God, he created them. And in Genesis 2, it seemed like God made the man first. And then later, who knows how much later, but later, he took the rib out of the man and made the woman. And so which is it? Is it this or is it this? Jason was like, not only does the first creation story contradict science, it contradicts the second creation story. Jason began shaking his head and losing faith in the Bible already. What is is this book that I'm reading? But he kept reading and he got to Genesis 3, the story of the magical tree and the talking snake and the naked woman that took the forbidden fruit. It sounded like a racy episode of the Snow White story that he had grown up hearing with the, the you know, the evil stepmother and all this stuff. And, and Jason just said, he, he, the more he read the Bible, the more he lost faith in it because it wasn't what he expected it to be. He expected it to be clear and true and factual. And this stuff was reading like, in his experience, subpar fiction. I can find fiction anywhere, he thought to himself. But he kept skimming, and it didn't get any easier for Jason. Genesis 4, he read about the time that a guy murdered his own brother because God preferred the brother's offering to his. He kept reading. There's the story where God got a little upset and wiped everything off the face of the earth. And the few people that remained after that horrific flood, they tried to rebuild something they could be proud of, a tower reaching to the sky, and God, like a jealous toddler on the playground, just wiped it out too. No, you can't have that either. It just seemed off-putting to Jason. He didn't understand what he was reading. He said, by the time my friend even said, I do, I was already saying, I don't, to the Bible. It's tough sometimes to understand this book. Is it fact or is it fiction? Listen, if you're Jason, I just want you to know the Bible contains facts, many, many facts, but facts don't contain the Bible. The Bible contains facts, but facts don't contain the Bible, right? Parts of the Bible are intentionally fictional, It's not a secret to anyone that knows the Bible. It's not a threat. A book like Hosea was written as fiction. Some of Jesus' most famous stories made up events. He made the story up, right? You could say parts of Job, famous story of Job. Could be fiction. The Bible is one-third poetry and songs. Poets and songwriters don't write about facts. They paint pictures with words. And ideas and imagination. If you were going to categorize poetry as fact or fiction, it would have to go in the fiction bucket. So is one-third of the Bible fiction? And what does that really say about the Bible? I, I think that Christians are more comfortable with this than we think. Although I do understand how thin the ice is for me right now with some of you. 
you're already writing that email in your head that you're going to send to me this afternoon. What kind of pastor says the Bible's fiction? I'm not saying the whole thing is fiction. Okay, are we clear? Saying it's all right if some parts of it are. It helps skeptics to make sense of the whole. But I understand why it makes many Christians nervous because it would seem to make Christianity and Christians in the Bible susceptible to arguments from angry atheists like Richard Dawkins who said the Bible should be taught but emphatically not as reality. It's fiction, myth, poetry, anything but reality. As such, it needs to be taught because it underlies so much of our literature and our culture. And that stings a little, but you know what stings even more? A similar quote from Sir Ian McKellen, who said, I've often thought the Bible should have a disclaimer in the front saying this is fiction. Listen, I can take a condescending comment about Christianity from Richard Dawkins, but this is, this is Gandalf we're talking about here, y'all. <laughs> This is Gandalf the Grey. This is Magneto from X-Men we're talking about here. You know, this is Professor Dumbledore from Harry Potter we're talking about here, right? No, actually, it's not right. That's some other old white dude. That's not Sir Ian McKellen. But you were going to buy it. You were going to go right along with it as though it was fact. Do you see how hard it is to discern fact from fiction sometimes? The reason it's so hard to discern fact from fiction when it comes to the Bible is because the Bible contains both fact and fiction. And I don't really think people are asking what it sounds like they're at. I don't think people are asking, is the Bible fact or fiction? I think the people in our hearts were asking, is the Bible true and trustworthy? Is it based on a true story that I can trust in and rely on? And that question hangs on the life of one man, Jesus of Nazareth. But my kids, you know, they're living in the world, and there's a lot of religion in the world, so you do have to teach your kids, if you're not raising them religiously, you do have to teach them about religion, you know? I always tell my kids the same thing. I tell them that there are many religions in the world, and they're all equal, but the Christians are the main one. That's what I tell them. The Christians won. They're the winners. So act accordingly. Congratulate Christians when you meet them because they won the world. And it's true. It's true. We love to tell each other, ourselves, like, every religion is exactly... No, no, they're not. The Christians won everything a long time ago. If you don't believe me, let me ask you a question. What year is it? I mean, come on. What year is it? according to the entire human race. And why? What year is it? Anybody, sir, just yell out the year. Thank you, 20, 2016. No, it's 20, <laughs> that's right. It's 2017. What is that? That's a number. It's not just any number. It must be a very important number because we're counting to it in unison as a species. For thousands of years, we've been going one, Two, three, come on everybody, four. And now come on Africa, five, six. What is this number? We're, we're counting the days since what? Since there was ever people or since the sun did a something? Not at all. 
It's been 2017 years since what? Anybody, yell it out. Since, yes, Christ! 2019 years since Christ! All right, so what I want to say as we get into the second question is whether the Gospels are true is that when you think about the Bible, you can think of it in the same way we think of time. What I mean by that is just as our understanding of time hinges on the veracity of the life of Jesus, so does the Bible. Listen, if Jesus is a fraud, if Jesus is a myth, if after his death, his followers made up great stories, big fish stories about him and he's a legend, then it's really not even 2019, the year of our Lord. Even time itself is a myth. It's corrupted, right? And some of you are like, well, maybe that's the case. Okay, I'm just saying that's the decision you have to make. And that's also the decision you have to make with the Bible. If Jesus is not who he said he was, if Jesus is not really God among us, if Jesus is not the one, then for Christians, from our perspective, the whole Bible is corrupted and meaningless, worthless trash. You can get rid of it. You can't rely on it. Definitely don't live by it because it's based on a lie. And this is why we always say, I'm always saying to people who want to understand the Bible better, before you decide what you believe about the Bible on the whole, decide what you believe about Jesus first. Decide what you believe about Jesus and then interpret the rest of the Bible through him. Listen, I know there is a lot of stuff in the Bible that's hard. It's hard to read and understand why this stuff would make the word of God. There's genocide and rape and wrath and war and misogyny, all kinds of horrible things, especially in the Old Testament. But listen, if Jesus is legit, you can trust that the Old Testament paints a picture of a dark world so that Jesus, the light, can come and shine in that world. If Jesus is for real, then the Old Testament is setting the table of, of the need for salvation so that when the Savior comes, it makes sense. This is the reality. This darkness is the reality that we live in. All those things I said are in the Old Testament. They're in our world today. So the reason that they're there, if Jesus is for real, is because Jesus said he's Yahweh. He's God. And he has come to fulfill what he began in the Old Testament. Now, if you struggle with Jesus and the question of his identity, you're in good company. It's fine. I've struggled with Jesus for 12 years. I honestly thought Jesus was probably a real person, but really just a good teacher, a good guy, lived for the right things, did the right things. And, and, and after his probable death, probably on a Roman cross even, I, I assumed back then, I, I assumed that his disciples made up stories about him. Big fish stories like people often do. I assumed that they made God out of the man, Jesus, right? That was what I assumed. And the source where I got those ideas, the first person that introduced me to those ideas was my college religion Professor Dr. David Otto. Last year, I convinced Dr. Otto somehow to sit down with me for an episode of the Maybe God podcast. This is part of that interview. Tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like we got away at times from a, a sincere or honest intellectual approach to really kind of a more sensational, like we need to rattle these kids' cages so that they'll, they'll leave their assumptions at the door. 
yes to rattle the cage, but not for the sake of just rattling, which is um, Kierkegaard, for instance, uh, discusses a, a difference between reason A and reason B. And reason A is all the doctrine you learn and grow up with in the church. But you have to push it. And you begin to see that it is, if you look at it, it's absurd. And so you, it's not until you really learn the absurdity of the Christian faith that you can make a leap to a different form of understanding that's informed. Uh, it's, it's critical thinking. Um, it's not taking things blindly. And, and it's wrestling with the absurdity um, because it is absurd. You know, I mean, say more. What do you mean about that? Well, you think about a Jewish peasant over 2,000 years ago, uh, pissed off some Romans, was crucified, and rose from the dead three days later, continued teaching, and eventually ascended to heaven. Well, that doesn't happen very often. And it's rather absurd to make that claim, mm. unless you have something that you can rely upon to back it up. Unless you have something to rely upon to back it up, that's the question. Do we have that? So when we talk about that, we're talking about the New Testament now and the four Gospels that we recognize as authoritative. Now, even though on this timeline it shows Matthew and Luke as um, being earlier than uh, Mark and John, that's because they begin with Jesus' birth story. But the first Gospel to actually be written down these cover the years that they tell about. The first gospel to be written down was probably Mark. Mark's gospel was written, we think, before the year 60 AD, so just a, two or three decades after the life of Jesus on earth ended, right? So who was this Mark person? If he's the first, who was he and why is he trustworthy, right? So um, we have pretty good evidence that uh, Mark was a real person and that he really knew the first followers of Jesus. There is a non-biblical, extra-biblical source called Papias who lived in the first century, and he wrote about Mark. He said Mark was Peter's interpreter and um, wrote accurately all that he remembered. Papias probably knew Mark personally, Peter was in Jesus' inner circle, one of the big three disciples that Jesus always hung out with, right? He was the rock on which I'll build my church and all that stuff. And, and Peter was probably illiterate, which explains his need for an interpreter and a scribe like Mark. And so we, we're pretty confident about the authorship of Mark and the claims that he makes. And then Matthew and Luke take Mark's gospel and they fill it in. Those two are a little bit longer than Mark. They fill it in with more details that they recall and they think are important. And then a few decades later, John's gospel is written and he doesn't include any of those details. Why? Well, because those details are already well known. By the time John writes, he wants to, before he breathes his last breath on earth in 90 or so AD, John wants to make sure as Jesus' best friend and Mary's adopted son, he wants to make sure to tell the story he feels he should tell from a different perspective, still beautiful and still true. All right, so we have these four Gospels. By the end of the first century, it's known that, that these four and only these four, the same four Gospels that you have in your Bibles, were already being circulated as authoritative throughout the churches. And by 180 AD, 
These four were recognized officially as the only authoritative sources of Jesus' life. I'll say why that happened in 180 in just a minute. First, I want to introduce you to a woman named Amy Orr Ewing, who um, is an apologist, a great thinker, and an author. And she told about um, her reasons for believing and trusting in the veracity of the Gospels in this clip you're about to see now. The Bible is written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and it was written on three continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. Now, often people imagine the Bible is the kind of tool of the white man, which has been used to found empires and beat people into submission in a sort of patriarchal conspiracy. And obviously, when we look at world history, we can see that terrible things have been done in the name of religion. But when we look at the Bible and the origins of the Bible, that preconception of this book doesn't actually fit the facts. You see, the vast spread of the Bible's original social, geographical, and cultural context is then also it multiplied immediately as the New Testament in particular was translated into multiple languages in the first century, copied and spread throughout the known world. And that means that the ancient texts upon which the translations of the Bible that you might have picked up are based is both stream, extremely well attested, but has also come out of multiple cultures and languages. Now, when we ask questions about the integrity of any ancient writing, it's, de it's determined by a number of things. One of those things would be the number of documented manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that we have to examine, just how many of this thing has survived. And then we might ask a question about the time difference between when the original was written and when a surviving piece of it still exists. What's the time difference between those two things? Now, if we were to take other ancient literature, we might take Plato, for example, and study his writings. The oldest copy of those manuscripts of Plato is a copy dating from about 1400 years after it was originally written. If we were to look at Sophocles, we might say, well, there are 193 copies, ancient copies of this manuscript, but the earliest is also 1400 years after Sophocles was writing. Or we might look at, at Aristophanes. Ten copies survive, but there's a time difference of 1,200 years between when it was written and what survives. And yet these texts are respected, and they're read in the present day. When it comes to the New Testament, we're not talking about 10 or 193 surviving manuscripts. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands, upwards of 30,000. And the originals aren't separated from the manuscripts by 1,400 years, but from the earliest ones that survive mere decades. So if anything other than the New Testament had been written when it was written, with the amount of manuscripts and evidence that we have to their uh, supporting their veracity um, and the uh, proximity of time, the close proximity of time from the actual events to the earliest manuscripts. If anything other than the New Testament had that kind of evidence supporting it, no college professor, no classroom, nowhere would you see anyone saying this can't be right, this can't be true, this can't be authentic. It's only because the New Testament is a threat 
to popular culture or to some worldviews that anyone even raises questions about the authenticity of its authorship and to its claims, right? And I know that there's some skeptics in the room that uh, aren't convinced by Amy or Ewing. It's just a three-minute clip, I understand. And some of y'all are thinking, well, I've heard other things. I know that the Christians kept out a bunch of Gospels and they just wanted these four to be in it. I've read the Da Vinci Code. I know what's in it. I've got a copy of it in my Subaru. I'll go get it for you, whatever. So, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. First of all, those Gospels exist. They weren't deleted. They're out there. Go read them. Go read them and find out for yourself why they weren't included in the canon. It's not that hard to figure out. First of all, the proximity of time is not there. These gospels didn't, start, gospels didn't start appearing until the end of the second century. That's why the church decided to make the four gospels authoritative and authentic and to, to endorse them. And in 180 AD, before then, there was no competition. There was no question. But by the end of the second century and throughout the third and fourth century, these Gnostic gospels kept cropping up. And you can go find them. There's a dozen or so of them. You can go find them and read them for yourself. They're totally different. They read like really bad fan fiction. They read as if some like stoner church kids like were dragged to church by their parents and that afternoon they went home and got high and they were like, we should write our own, man. We should, <laughs> we should write our own gospel. We could totally do it. And then they did it. And none of it adds up. None of it makes sense. Let me give you a couple of examples, and you'll see how these differences take shape. So in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, almost 30 places are identified accurately. Names of tiny villages like Bethany that nobody would ever know where that is unless you went there. Like Bethany was like Red Lake, where I'm from. Like nobody knows where that is unless you've been there. Especially in the age before, like maps and Google and all this stuff. Nobody knew where Bethany was. They name almost 30 places, villages, towns, and cities, and accurately place them in relationship to one another. When you look at the Gnostic Gospels, there is the Gospel of Philip that has two places named in it. One of them is Jerusalem. Everybody knows Jerusalem. The other one is Nazareth. That's where Jesus was from. But in the Gospel of Philip, Nazareth was not a place. Nazareth, this Philip guy, thought Nazareth was Jesus' middle name. <laughs> Jesus Nazareth Christ. Here, all along, I thought his middle initial was H. That's what I'd always heard. <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently it's N. All right, because Nazareth is his middle name. The only other Gnostic gospel that has any place at all mentioned in it is the gospel of Peter, which has one place, Jerusalem. None of the other Gnostic gospels even names a single place. That's what happens when myths form, when legends take shape over centuries, the details drop out because the people that come up with the legends and myths have never been to Bethany. They don't know what that place is like or why it's important or if it really exists, right? So the details drop out. Also, the characters change, like the character of the hero in particular changes. In the four gospels, Jesus' teachings are clear and concise and timeless. Y'all know them? They never lose their power. In the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, Jesus said things like this. Tell me if you can see the difference. Jesus said, blessed is the lion which becomes man when consumed by man. Cursed is the man whom the lion consumes and the lion becomes man. Whoa. 
should totally put that in there, bro. It's really good. Like, <laughs> doesn't even compare. All right, these four gospels that we have are early, they are authentic, they are backed up by the historical record, and they do not compare to anything else. Amy or Ewing closed out her talk on the Bible with these words. See, the Christian claim is that God has made himself known to us in real time, space, and history. And he's done it for a purpose. He's made himself known so that we can come to know him personally, not just know about him, not just think thoughts about him, but actually meet him, to be forgiven by him and to spend eternity with him. The miracles of the Bible are not about some legend, delusional fantasy world. They reflect the divine breaking into the real world that we all know. The world of pain, the world of disappointment, the world of violation, the world of dysfunction. We're not reading about a God who's distant, who orders us around arbitrarily, but a God who is willing to identify with us to such an extent that he will take the consequences of our darkness, our disobedience, the violations of other people's freedom that we have perpetrated, the violations of relationships that we've perpetrated against others and with him. He's willing to take that upon himself so that we can come to know him. First two questions were, is the Bible fact or fiction and are the gospels reliable? The third and final question is, is Jesus the Messiah or is he just another myth? In 1949, a great, brilliant thinker, Joseph Campbell, wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he was a, a, a specialist and a, an academic when it came to the stories that people tell and what Joseph Campbell knew is that since the dawn of time, people have always told stories about their gods. They've always made up stories and passed down stories about their heroic figures that gave meaning and shape to their culture. And what Joseph Campbell realized in his, in his research was that these stories all told similar Details and, and he surmised that these stories that span many hundreds or thousands of years, really, across cultures and languages and places and times, like these stories all derive from the same source material. They must. How else would all these cultures across time and places like share so many things in common? There must be what he called the monomyth, the one sort of original source. He never identified it. He said, it must be there somewhere. Joseph Campbell always also said that these heroes that um, show up in these mythological stories, these fantasy stories that cultures are based on, these heroes are all the same hero. Same qualities, same traits, same actions. They're the hero with a thousand faces, right? So uh, the, the storyline of the hero is always the same. Joseph Campbell outlined it in his book, and, and I'll just walk you through it real quick. This will sound very familiar, especially if you are a fan of movies and epic books and stuff like that. Like, 
uh, first, the first step in the hero's journey is, is usually um, we find him or her before they are really a hero, living an average life in a nowhere town. Maybe they have some special skills, but they haven't really done anything special with those skills yet. They're just kind of living an, an average life until an eccentric friend shows up in their life somehow. An eccentric friend always dressed funny and looking weird and, and they have some special insight or special knowledge and they encourage the hero to be who they really are. Do it, it's time. And with this eccentric friend's encouragement, the hero steps forward and says, I will do it. But there comes a moment, a defining moment where the hero has to choose between his normal, going back to his average life that he knew before and diving in whole hog into this new life. And he knows, the hero knows that if he takes the red pill, nothing can ever be the same. But he takes it. And the minute that he takes it, he is whisked away by some spiritual mentor, some spiritual guide to some random, like nowhere place where the hero endures a season of trial that ends with a test. And if the hero passes the test, he knows that it's time and he looks his worst fear in the eye and he knows how treacherous and how perilous the journey ahead will be. But our hero, undeterred, marches on toward the sacrifice he knows that he's going to have to make until in the blink of an eye, in an instant, all hell breaks loose on earth and the enemy, the villain, appears to have won and all hope appears to have been lost. In a last-ditch effort to save the world and the people that he loves, our hero goes straight into the belly of the beast where the darkness seems too great to overcome and he is taken in by it. He surrenders. He breathes his last. He lays down his life for the sake of those he loves. But death cannot hold our hero down. He rises up in power. He overcomes the grave. He returns to give his people hope. And once his mission on earth is accomplished, he leaves the world that he came to save behind until the appointed time that he is to return. But he promises that it's not completely over yet. One day, the rightful king will be crowned. One day, there will be peace. Sound familiar? Of course it does, not least of which because this storyline describes to a T the life story arc of Jesus. And we have to decide, Christians, what we're going to do with Jesus. Is he just another myth? Is he just another story or is he the source? Is he just the myth or is he the Messiah? And I think there are all kinds of rational reasons to believe that he's not just another myth. I think as Amy Orr Ewing talked about the proximity between his real life and the, the writings of his real life, there's no time there for a myth to develop. These people are eyewitnesses. They knew this man in the flesh and they're making these claims about him in their same generation. That's not how myths unfold, historically speaking. Jesus was a historical figure, a real person in flesh and blood. No one disputes that. That's not usually what myths are built around. Maybe most convincingly, myths almost universally reinforce the pre-existing worldview of the culture that birthed them. But the story of Jesus does not reinforce the worldview of first century Judaism. It presents a clear and present 
threat to the first century Jewish worldview. I mean, just read the Old Testament, how God is one. God is high in the sky. God cannot be a man. A man cannot be God. And yet we have four different accounts of people, Jewish people, faithful Jews, worshiping a man in his life and soon after. Not only do we have gospel accounts of them worshiping a man, we have, thanks to archaeology again, we have these inscriptions that they've dug up in the first century house churches where they declared Jesus to be not their teacher, not their rabbi, but their God. Listen, when I tell you, if first century Jewish people were going to make up a myth about someone, it wouldn't be about a man that they worshiped. It doesn't fit. It's a scandal. And those people paid the price for that belief. Listen, I, I, I know that there are skeptics in the room who are saying, all right, maybe. Maybe the Gospels are legit. Maybe Jesus really lived. Maybe he did some awesome things. I don't know. I'm open to miracles. Maybe so. But I know for a fact, because I heard it in a class one time or on the internet, I heard it on YouTube or something, that the divinity of Jesus wasn't even a thing until Constantine the emperor said that it was much later. That's when they decided Jesus was God. Except for the fact that before the gospels were even written, we have these letters from a man named Paul who spent the first part of his life killing Christians and then found his way to Jesus and spent the second half of his life preaching the gospel and testifying to truths like this from 1 Corinthians. This was written in the year 55 or so AD. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Let's go home, close your Bibles, use them for firewood. They don't matter. It's all garbage. If Christ has not been raised, if he is not in fact God among us, then it's all a lie. Let's quit. Ten years after he wrote these words, Paul died in a Roman prison for his beliefs in this Christ. He and thousands of other people. Faithful Jews and Gentiles alike putting their faith in Jesus, giving many, giving many opportunities to recant their faith and tell the truth about what really happened. Where is that body? They never did. It's not typical human behavior for thousands of people to die for something they know to be a lie, a myth, a made-up story. They die because it's true. Now, as I said, there's rational fact after rational fact. Some of you won't be convinced. That's okay. Maybe what I'll do with the last 90 seconds of my time here is to just tell you my own heart and my own affection for this book. When I was a child, I loved it. And when I was a teenager, I left it. In my 20s, I absolutely loathed it. In my 30s, I found my way back to it. And now I guess I'm a grown man, I'm an adult, I'm supposed to be standing on my own two feet, I'm supposed to be independent, but I am more acutely aware of my dependence on this book than I ever have been in my life. I don't know where I'd be without these stories. It's my life raft, right? It's my everything. I wake up with it and I give thanks to God for it every day. I love everything about this book, even the hard stuff. I love because I know what that means is God redeems the hard stuff. I love everything about this book. I love the beginning, the creation story, both of them. I love both creation stories. 
I love how when God sends Adam and Eve into the garden, the first thing he commands of people ever, his first commandment in the Bible is go do it, go do it, go do it, and make some babies. That's the first thing he tells them to do. I love how God, even though he was heartbroken by sin, he put the rainbow in the sky and said, Noah, I love you. Let's start over. I love how even in the Old Testament, God is putting women in positions of leadership like Deborah and using women like Rahab, a woman of the night, to make his plans come to pass. I love how stupid Esau trades in his birthright for a bowl of soup. I love how the Proverbs make fun of nagging wives. I love how Mary tells Jesus to turn that water into wine, and he's like, it's not happening, woman. And then, inexplicably, he turns the water into wine anyway because we know she shot him the mom look, and he did it. I love how Jesus gave his disciples nicknames like James and John. He always called them the sons of thunder, which begs the question, how flatulent were James and John? Where else does a name like that even come from?